0: All right, our scripture reading uh, this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I am going to read verses 1 through 15 for you as we continue our way through this Jesus storybook Bible series that we're on. We are in Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the Lord your Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so here we are uh, back in the Old Testament, making our way through this uh, Series on the Jesus Storybook Bible, and when we when we last looked at at when we last looked at when we last week <laughs> we were in the book of Genesis, the very end of the book of Genesis, and we were looking at the life of Joseph and uh, the experiences of Joseph. And at the end of the the book of Genesis, Joseph says to his father Jacob and to all his brothers, he says, "Hey, come live with me in Egypt, where you'll be safe during the famine." and I'll protect you and watch over you, et cetera. And they say, sir, sounds good. So they move down to uh, Egypt. And so the book of Genesis closes with 70 uh, of God's people living in Egypt. The book of Exodus opens 400 years later, and this family of 70 people is now the nation of Israel. It's the, the Hebrews. And they have grown into an entire complete nation, And at the same time, they have also become enslaved by the Egyptians with whom they've been living for these 400 years. Now they are the economic engine of the world's greatest superpower at the time, the nation of Egypt. And of course, because they're oppressed, and you can read about that in Exodus chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2, because they've been oppressed by um, the Egyptians, they they are crying out under the weight of their oppression, and God hears their cry, and He decides that He is going to save them. He is going to rescue them from the Egyptians. But in order to do that, He needs a leader. He needs a, a, a representative to go on His behalf to the Egyptians and to the Israelites uh, to uh, bring about the salvation of God's people. And God chooses this guy, Moses. Now, who's Moses? Moses is a very interesting character because Moses is a Hebrew, but he wasn't raised as a Hebrew. You've got to read about this in the first couple of chapters of the book of Exodus. There's a lot that happens in the first couple of chapters of the book of Exodus. But anyhow, he grows up till he's about 40. When he, a Hebrew, sees an Egyptian attack an Israelite, and he actually kills the Egyptian. But then later, he sees two Israelites fighting. He tries to intervene again, but then the Israelites are like, what are you going to do? Murder me like you murdered that Egyptian? And he's like, oh no, people know about what I did. And so he escapes, and he lives in the desert. And he does that for 40 years, where he becomes a shepherd. This is the guy that God has chosen to lead his people out of Egypt. And it's not going to be a very easy job. And we'll see why in a few minutes. But when you get called into a very tough job, like Moses is getting called into, what do you need? You need assurance. You need encouragement. You need to be told, you can do this and here's why. Well, how is Moses going to be able to do this big job of confronting Pharaoh and the Egyptians and lead the people of Israel, a whole nation of like a million people or more, out of this land? Well, he needs confidence and that confidence comes from his God. So in this story, Exodus chapter 3, God introduces himself to Moses. He needs, Moses needs to know something about the guy, who, the guy, sorry, I apologize. God is not the guy, the one He needs to know something about the one who is sending him into this task. And so this whole chapter is about God's, what you could call, self-disclosure, closure, or God's self-revelation. And that's a very important thing for us to realize. Because you see, up until this time, Moses believed in God. He knew something about God. He understood some concepts about God. But he hadn't really encountered God personally. And that's what happens in this story. He, he encounters God personally as God really is. And why this is important for us is, is because you and I live in a day and age where it's very common for people to talk about... Um, They talk about God as though he's something that they get to define. So you'll hear people say stuff like, "Um, well, I like to think of God as this way. Or, I don't think God would do X Or that God would say X, or God would expect X. I remember actually once years ago watching Oprah having a religion conversation, and someone was talking about sort of God's uh, expectations for human beings, and she said, I don't believe in a God like that. I believe in a God who would accept everybody as they are. But here's the truth we don't actually have the right to define God for him. We don't have the right to tell God what he ought to be. We don't even have the right to tell other people what they ought to be. We don't do that to other people. But we do seem to feel like it's okay to do that to God. Here, let me help help you understand what I mean. Uh, Those of you who have had young children... Uh, you'll remember that when your kids were young, you wanted to teach them to eat well. You wanted them to eat the right things, healthy food, stuff like that. And so you'd steam up a good old batch of cauliflower, right? And you'd stick it in front of their faces. And of course, anybody who smelled cauliflower almost immediately goes, whoa, ew. Sorry to all of you who love cauliflower, but you're weird people. You just are. You go, ew, and the kid goes, ew. And what does the parent do? The parent tries to fool the kid. And the parent says something like, what do you mean, ew? You love cauliflower. And the parent is trying to manipulate the desires of the kid in order to get them to actually like the thing that the kid already knows deep down in its taste, his or her taste buds that they do not like one bit. All you kids are like, oh, that's what they're doing to me? Sorry, parents. The jig is up. But listen, it's all funny and well and good that you might do this with food with your kids, but if you continue in the vein of refusing to, ex- to respect people's character, personality, Desires, wants, needs as they are, if you keep rejecting that and saying, no, 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 I like to think of you as this way, I like to believe that you're this way, I like to think that you like this, or I like to believe that you want that, if you continue to refuse to let people express themselves as they are and accept them as they are, you will eventually lose the relationship. Eventually they will say, well, you're not hearing me. You don't know who I am. You don't, you don't accept who I am. And if you value the relationship, you're going to lose that relationship. Now, we won't do that with people, but we do it to God all the time. All the time. This is what I like to think you're like, God. And what this story shows us is that we need to meet God as He really is. And and it shows us what happens when we do meet God as He really is. When we encounter God's self-disclosure what do we discover when we encounter God's self-disclosure well this is this is basically it friends we discover that you're dealing with fire Moses is on this mountain he's tending his sheep he sees a bush that's on fire that by the way is not that strange in a desert climate where uh, it's very dry these kinds of things will happen But when it does happen, Moses looks at it and he goes, wait a minute, this fire is a little different than other fires because that bush is not burning up. It's on fire, but it's not burning up. And so he decides to get a little closer. And when he does get a little closer, it says in our text that God calls to him from the burning bush. God appeared to Moses in fire. Why? Why fire? That's what we're going to explore together. We're going to see that fire is a powerful, beautiful picture of the nature of God as he really is. So, that's what we're going to look at together. The first thing we see from this story is is that the nature of God is that he is real and personal, that he is real, and that he is personal. Remember I said before, Moses at, at one point, he did believe in God, but now he's encountering God. Well, What do I mean by that? Think about fire. What does fire do? Fire attacks your senses, right? You, uh, you see the bright light of fire. You, you hear the crackle of the fire. If the fire is big enough, you hear the, the absolute roar of the fire. You smell the smoke, right, of the fire, and you feel the heat of a fire. You don't believe in fire. You encounter fire. It imposes its reality upon you. And the same is true of God. Now, you might say to yourself, okay, I don't get that. (laughs) You don't believe in God, you experience God, well, stick with me. I am saying that you need to experience God. There's a place in Psalm, chapter, or Psalm 34 where David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't say, have a cognitive understanding of a number of logical precepts about God, abstract ideas about God, and therefore know God. No, and see that, that God is good. No, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a difference between understanding something intellectually and having experiential knowledge of it. That makes sense to you, I'm sure. If I tell you, hey, here's a, here's a dessert, and this dessert is so sweet, and you say to yourself, hmm, I believe, Paul, when he says that this dessert is so sweet, that's different from you taking a bite and actually tasting the sweetness on your, on your tongue, right? Right? Yeah, well, that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're saying here, that Moses had a knowledge of who God was, but then he had an experience of who God is through the fire, he had an actual ex- existential encounter with God, and I know that sounds weird to you. Again, so let me let me help you try to understand that, especially those of you who are like, "Whoa, preacher man, you sound a little bit charismatic with all this touchy-feely stuff about about God." I, I'm more of a thinking person, not a feeling person. Well, stick with me here. What does it mean? How do you know that you've had that kind of an encounter with God? Well, here's a good way of knowing. When you don't just believe that human beings are sinners or that the human race is totally depraved and in need of salvation, totally corrupt by evil. When you don't just believe that that's true, but you believe that you individually and personally are a sinner deserving of God's judgment. When you don't just think, well, yeah, you know, people suck, Human beings are no good, and human beings definitely deserve God's judgment. Just check the news, and you can see how bad human beings are. But you actually believe that you deserve God's judgment, that you deserve God's wrath for your personal, individual sin. Then you know that you're having an encounter with God, because you see, that also means that you can have an encounter with the grace of God because when you look at the cross you don't just see that god sort of died for sinners out there in the in the the great unknown but rather that he died specifically and personally for you. When you think about the cross of Jesus Christ and you think about his life and ministry, when you open up the Gospels and you actually read the life of Jesus and you see that he was God in the flesh and that he came into this world and that he was treated horribly by people while he tried to show them God's love. And then when they finally get their hands on him, they actually grabbed him and they put a crown of thorns on his head and, and they convicted him of a crime he didn't commit and they sent him through Jerusalem carrying a piece of wood which was gonna be the means of his own death and he climbed up that hill on Calvary with that piece of wood and when he finally got it to the top they held him down and they nailed him to that piece of wood and then they hung that piece of wood up so that he was hanging and feeling not only the physical suffering of crucifixion but experiencing the existential suffering of paying for the penalty of your sin and my sin when you see him there You don't just say, yes, Jesus did all that for the sins of the world. You say to yourself, Jesus is doing that for me. In the moment of Jesus dying on the cross and taking wrath, the wrath of God for sin, you realize that he had your name on his lips. He had your name engraved in his hands. You were on his mind. He was saying, I'm doing this for Paul Vandenbrink. I know him intimately. I know him deeply. I love him purely. And I love him infinitely. And I will embrace the fire of God's wrath for sin for him. Not just Jesus came and died for the sins of the world. Not just Jesus came to die for people. Jesus came to live the life of I should have lived and died the death. I should have died. That's the encounter. That he loved, not just God so loved the world, but he loved me as part of the world. That's fire. God is there and he is personal. That's the first thing. He's not just there and he's personal, though. We also learn that he is also ultimate reality. Those of you who like philosophy and big ideas and stuff like that and getting your mind all twisted up by by ideas that kind of blow your mind, you know? John Piper says, use your mind to blow your mind. You're going to like this point, okay? See, fire usually needs fuel to burn, right? You stick wood in there or you put more charcoal on the fire or whatever to keep it burning. But here's a fire that is just burning on its own. It's not sucking up anything. It's just on fire. And that is a picture of the conversation and the revelation that God gives Moses in just a few verses later. Because Moses, what does he do? He says, okay, you want me to go to Egypt and you want me to represent you to God's people and to Pharaoh and kind of guide them all out of that land. But what happens if I go and the people are like, who sent you? Why should we listen to you? Who are you? God, what's your name? What should I tell them? And in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Are we good? Ha, okay. Oh, I was building up to something awesome there. What was it now? (sighs) He says, who do I say? say say," He says, verse 14, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. Now, the wording there is a little tough to translate. So it could be, I will be, or uh, I will be who I am. Something like that. But the point is this. God's telling Moses, tell them that being itself is sending you. He's saying, I am uncaused. He's saying, I am, I am self existence You see, in Eastern traditions, God is some kind of emanation of the underlying life force of the universe. And in many Western pagan religious traditions, God was was created. Uh, He arose out of the raw material of the universe through the deeps of time. But here God is saying, I'm not like that. God is saying I am self-existent. I am self-determining. I am uncaused. I am the unmoved mover of Aristotle. I am the ground of being of Paul Tillich. I am the thing behind all the things that all the philosophers and all the thinkers and all the theologians through all of history around all the world. I am underneath it all. I am the ground of being. It's not even that I exist in a sense. I am existence itself. In other words, I am absolute being. I am life itself. I depend on nothing. There is no beginning to me. There will be no end to me. You cannot extend me and find my limits in any way. I didn't say this in the 9 a.m. I wish I did because this is one of my favorite ones. Think about this. God is comprehensively everywhere at the same time. So you, imagine yourself laying in bed, okay? And you look and you, you push your foot up and you see the, the blanket go up and you say, there's my foot, that's part of me over there. And then you push your arm up and you say, ah, that's part of me over there. If God were to do that, all of him is everywhere at exactly the same time. Weird, eh? Amazing, eh? Because God exists out of time. In fact, we're even talking about something that doesn't make sense because God does not exist in time. You have to, you have to be part of the space-time continuum to be even talk about things like having a beginning or having an end or having an an, an, an extension. But God is outside of all of that. You know, the ancients would talk about uh, the four main elements, earth, wind, water, and fire. And they said everything was made up out of those things, earth, wind, water, and fire. And if you think about it, you can, you can conform each of those things to what you want or, or have some kind of control over it. So, earth, You take some clay and you can mold clay into something, right? You take water, you put your hand in water and you displace the water and your your hand exists and moves the water out of the way. You can slice your hand through the air and the air does not, the air has to move for you. Fire doesn't work that way. Fire does not conform to you. You have to conform to fire do you see, that's why God reveals himself in fire. Everything must conform to his reality. We don't, he doesn't conform to ours. Do you not see why it is just crazy for us to think for a second that we would have the right to define God in any way? And no, God says, tell them I am sent you. Now, whenever I use the phrase I am, I add stuff after the I am, right? I say, I am Paul. I am father. I am husband. I am friend. I am neighbor. I am soccer fanatic. I am whatever. These are things that contribute to defining my character. But God says simply this, I am, full stop. What it's What it's emphasizing is is that there's a circular argument in the sense of uh, contributing to God's grandeur and transcendence. Now, that was fun. What's the point? Is God revealing himself to Moses like this, say, I am sent you. So that Moses can sit back and relax and go, hmm, very, very interesting. Let me just lean back and contemplate the nature of God as the infinite, personal, transcendent ground of existence and being. Now, for some of us, that's a worthwhile thing. But for most of us, that does not really translate into anything. And it didn't for Moses either. Because you see, God was doing this for a specific purpose. Remember, God tells Moses, he says in verse 7, I have heard them crying out, and I am concerned of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And so in verse 8, he says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And then in verse 10, he says, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Listen. God has told Moses, listen, I want you to go to the most powerful nation on earth, and I want you to go to the most powerful person on earth, and I want you to tell him to let the the foundation of his economy go. I want you to tell him to let the foundation, the, the, the cornerstone of his power and might over the entire world, to let them loose. He's sending Moses into the lion's den, you see. And Moses is thinking, how am I going to do this? I'm never going to be able to pull this off. And it's quite a funny exchange between Moses and God. If you read the rest of the chapter, when Moses is trying to make all the excuses and stuff and saying, well, you know, uh, I'm not a very good talker, and, you know, I, I, I'm kind of busy with my sheep and all this sort of thing. Because he knows that God is sending him into something huge, and God is saying, you have nothing to fear. You know why you have nothing to fear? Because I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one who holds the universe in the palm of my hand. I am the one who named every single star. There are billions upon billions of, of galaxies each with billions and billions of stars. They think that there are at least, at least, listen to this, 10 to the power of 60 plus stars in the known universe. That's 10 with 60 zeros behind it. And the Bible says, and God says, I know every single one of those stars by name. There's Jimmy, and there's Tommy, and there's Alex, and I know we have all these cool Latin and Greek names for them, but he, had the, he named them. And you are worried about the future, and you're worried about the assignment I'm giving you, and you don't need to be, because I have you in the palm of my hand Some of you need to hear this because you are like Moses. Well, we're all like Moses. But some of you, okay, I'll tell you who you're like. You're like Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was a contemporary of Martin Luther. And he was an anxious person. And he could get worked up sometimes about the stuff that was happening in the world around him. And he'd kind of freak out. And and every now and then, Luther would just have to talk him back from the edge of the cliff. And one of the things that Martin Luther would say to Philip, he would say, Philip... Is it not time for Philip to stop, to cease ruling the world? Let Philip cease ruling the world. Now, I can tell you, I had to preach that to myself. I don't know how many times during uh, the first couple of months of COVID because, you know, I'm thinking about my church and all my people and how are we going to keep going and will we ever get to worship again and will I even find these people still believing in God by the end of all of this? All kinds of crazy stuff happening in my life and going through my head. And every now and then I had to have like that slap across the face to tell me, would Paul Vandenbrink please stop ruling the world? It's like that scene in Moonstruck. I, I should have found out between services. Cher is talking to, I think, her husband. And he's freaking out over something. And she slaps him and says, snap out of it! You old people know that reference. Because you've seen that movie. If you're under 30, probably you've never even heard of Cher. <laughs> Sorry, Cher. Or Moonstruck. But listen. It's like that splash of cold water. That reminds us, Listen. God is the one who upholds absolutely everything, not us. It's a tremendous comfort. Okay, last thing. The fire also shows us that God is holy. Moses comes to this thing. To, to this, uh, Moses comes to this uh, bush, this spring bush. And God says to him, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. Now, it's very interesting. This is the first time in the Bible that the word holy is used. The concept has been around prior to this moment, but this is the first time that the word holy is used. And it is noteworthy because that word holy, it figures, you know, big later through the Bible in our understanding of God and our relationship to him. And fire is a great symbol of God's holiness. It captures two aspects of God's holiness in one symbol. The first is the attractiveness and the beauty of God. Fire is, is beautiful, isn't it? It's attractive. COVID meant that we had a lot more fires in our backyard than we ever did before. And it was great for that. You sit in front of the fire, you know, campfire, same thing. You sit in front of it and you see the, the flames dancing in the night and you, you look, you know, you know when you, when you build a really good fire and it gets like super hot in the middle and then you can see through the, the logs to the, like the white part of the, of the fire? Do you get that? Can you nod if you get that? Okay. Isn't it like you're looking at like gems or am I Am I weird? isn't it? It's, it's just absolutely beautiful. It's mesmerizing how gorgeous and wonderful and beautiful it is. This is what people did before we had television. You know, the fire was the TV of the first 5,000 years of human existence probably. Oh man, my jokes are f- like flopping horribly, but that's okay. Forget it. You know, the, the jokes aren't the important part. The point is, is that fire is beautiful and attractive. And scripture teaches that the most beautiful and attractive thing in the universe, in existence, is God himself. In Isaiah chapter 6, you have these angels. How beautiful do you have to be to be an angel? I mean, how beautiful are those beasts, or, or not beasts, creatures? They're incredibly beautiful, and Isaiah 6 says that that there they were in in the temple of God, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And what are they doing? They're covering their faces with their wings because God is so beautiful, even the angels can't look at him. And so God is attractive to us. The idea of a pure, holy, glorious being, it attracts us, but at the same time, fire is deadly. You can kill you if you get too close, right? I've never been uh, in front of a major house fire. I've never been to California when they've had major fires or up north in Ontario or anything, but I did grow up on a fruit farm at at one part of my life, and we used to prune the apple trees, and then we used to take all the brush to the back of the farm, and we'd have a brush fire, and they were huge piles of wood, huge, huge piles of wood, and we'd light that sucker up, and it would it would catch and the flames would like, they would be like two stories high and the sheer roar of the fire, I had no idea that fire was so loud when it was burning hot and everything around it was, was being heated up and you could not get close because if you got too close, you would die, of course. And what this passage is showing us is that God, his purity... His holiness is not just his beauty, but it's also his moral purity. God is pure goodness. God is moral perfection because God is absolute being, which means that God is the standard of what is right and wrong. You can't go to a, uh, like God never has to go to a law book to figure out what's right or wrong. He goes to himself, To decide what is right and wrong he doesn't go to an almanac to find out what facts are true and what facts are false he goes to himself because he is the standard of what is true and what is right the problem is of course that you and i want that role we want that job we want to be the ones who decide what is right and wrong certainly for us and if we're honest we kind of want to decide what is right and wrong for other people too even the most relativistic person who says oh everyone's got to decide what is right or wrong for themselves they still Preach the value of recycling, and they want everybody to do it. And so we want to be the ones who decide what is right and what is wrong. And so when God and us are both saying, we're the ones who decide what is right and what is wrong, it's like you have two gravitational pulls at war with one another, and something's got to give, and friends, I'm here to tell you, God's not the one who gives. We're the ones who gives maybe not in the way that we think it's not like god says well i'll show you i'm stronger and i'm more powerful god is just like an immovable object if he is the ground of being if he is the abs- he is absolute being itself god doesn't have to move we will move if you think of a reef and a ship and the ship comes along and it encounters the reef what happens to the ship the ship breaks apart. The reef doesn't break apart. The waves beat against the, the ship and the ship cracks up on the reef. Why? The reef didn't pull the ship in. The reef didn't uh, attack the ship. The reef was just there and the ship tried to, tried, to, in, tried to impose its being on the reef and it lost. And it destroyed itself on the, the very being of the ship. And scripture teaches that, that God is immovable and that his standards are there and that you and I, if we are going to try to push up against them, flawed human beings like us try to get close to a holy, pure God with our self-centeredness, that holiness is fatal. The big question in this story is not, why is the fire not burning up? Or sorry, why is, not the, bush, why is the bush not burning up? The big question is, why is Moses not burning up? He gets so close to that thing, and he yet doesn't die. How is that possible? And this is how we're going to close. Remember I said that this, a big part of this series is about learning how to read the Bible? Well, you're going to get a big lesson in how to read, read the Bible this morning. The reason Moses can get close to this burning God is because of the angel. You say, angel? What angel? Verse 2, it says... There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And then in verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. The angel of the Lord was in the bush, but then it's the Lord who calls from the bush. What's going on here? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, occasionally, all throughout, occasionally throughout the Old Testament, you meet this mysterious figure called the angel of the Lord. And he seems to be God, but he also seems to be a representative of God at the same time, and it's kind of hard to figure out. How does this work? Well, Alec Mateer, an Old Testament scholar, put it this way. He said, there is only one other person in the Bible, so this angel of the Lord, Represents God, but is God. And Alec Mateer says there's only one other person in the Bible who is both identical with, yet distinct from the Lord. One who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity or diminishing the divine holiness, is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners. And who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet a supreme display of his outreaching mercy. The angel of the Lord cannot be understood except as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. The angel of the Lord is Jesus before his incarnation. And you think to yourself, "Wow, well, I don't know, come on, preacher, how is that possible? Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. And in verse 58, he says to them, when they're asking him how old he is, and he claims that he's older than Abraham, and they say, How can that be? He says, Before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was, not I was born, just I am. And of course, those Jews knew exactly what he was saying. He was identifying himself with God. That's why they wanted to stone him. Jesus identifies himself with the angel of the Lord from Exodus 3. Now, why am I telling you this? This is why I'm telling you this. Remember I said at the very beginning that God was gonna rescue his people, but he needed a mediator. He needed a representative to go to Pharaoh and to represent him to Pharaoh and to go to his people and mediate between him and his people, and he had chosen Moses for the task. The problem was, was Moses was a sinner like you and me. He didn't fulfill the qualifications. He was weak. He was terrified. He was was unqualified for the job, and he was selfish and only concerned about his his own well-being, the same kind of thing that you and I struggle with, and so Moses needed a mediator. Moses needed a representative, just like us, the son of God was the mediator for Moses just like he's the mediator for you and me he's the holy one Jesus is the holy one who when God descended on Calvary pouring out his perfect justice on sin that that fire that did not consume was in that moment consumed by the fire of his father's wrath so that you and I would not have to be, so that you and I could be here this morning entering the presence of God and not be killed for getting too close, but rather be welcomed in. That's the application. I gave it to you right there. Go home, sit in a chair, look at the beautiful colors of the, Forest of the trees as they're changing color and just contemplate God as the great I am for 10 minutes and see what it does to you. I know 10 minutes is long for modern people like us. But see what it does to you. God is I am. Let's pray. Father, I... I did a lousy job of communicating your greatness, but I don't feel too bad about it because every attempt to communicate your greatness is ultimately lousy because you are great beyond our wildest imagination. But we praise you and thank you that in your greatness, you have revealed yourself to us and made a way for us to know you, the great one. And we pray that as we know you more and more, as you reveal yourself to us, rather than through our own feeble definitions of who God should be, but as you really are in your word, enable us, O God, to bask in your glory, to be strengthened by your holiness and and, and empowered by it, to face each day with confidence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.